Yeah, well, uh, I decided actually uh, Monday morning to teach Psalm 8. So you can return there, or go to there rather. Hopefully you're returning there. You've been there many times. Uh, I had planned to do it later. Uh, but Aaron Strobach is actually the one that manipulated me into uh, climbing Mount St. Helen with him. Uh, and you're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? You'll see. I kept telling Aaron no because I hadn't been working out. I haven't done anything for two years, uh, partly because of COVID and then Shandy was injured and all of that. So I didn't feel prepared. And then even after I got COVID, he kept pressing me and pushing me. Uh, like that's something that someone would typically want to do after feeling terrible for 10 days. Uh, And then uh, he had some people drop out, so there was all these tickets. And so Isaac uh, decided that he wanted to go, but that's something a father wants to experience with his son. So uh, I finally buckled under the pressure. And uh, you're still wondering what that has to do with Psalm 8. Uh, I'm getting to that. How many of you guys have climbed Helen's? One, two, two of you, maybe three. Okay. So, uh, yeah, actually, the last time I did it in the wintertime, we had to park three miles below the parking lot because the snow was so high we couldn't get in. So that added six miles to our trip. It was a very long, grueling day on the mountain. But when when you get to the trailhead there at the parking lot, you know, you're, you're surrounded by trees, and then you have this rather small window uh, from which you can see the sky. And then once you hit the trail, that window actually narrows for a few miles. It's smaller. But then as you emerge from the tree line and the trees begin to vanish, the sky comes into full view. But still, much of the heavens are blocked because of the you know, the broadness of this uh, behemoth that's in front of you. But then the more that you ascend the mountain, of course, it narrows. And the heavens, uh, because of that, they expand before you until you reach the summit. At that point, the whole mountain is beneath you. And you can see at which point in every direction where the earth terminate, per- terminates at the horizon. And then you realize that nothing stands between you and heaven above. Yeah, Uh, both the earth and the sky come into full view. And there you are suspended between them. You're tiny, you're inconsequential, and in reality, you're insignificant, right? And if you're paying attention, you're struck by the reality that you are little more than an ant on a great anthill of which you did not build, <clears throat> and above you is this unfathomable expanse. And then as I pondered that in light of all that I can see and all that I am in respect to it, the words of Psalm 8 came to mind. What is man that you are mindful of him? Of course, and what is the son of man that you would visit him? Verse 4. So I, I thought, well, there's my psalm for Thursday. And uh, so that's why we're doing this tonight. So the text, um, why don't don't we stand up if you can, and we'll read God's word. Psalm 8. Let's read the whole psalm. David says, To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. 
O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for the psalm. Thank you for David as he came under inspiration of your spirit to write things that would bless you, truths about you, and things that would inspire us to take a better look around us that we might want to worship you for more reasons. And uh, so, Lord, we thank you, and we pray that you would teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So the the psalm uh, is kind of like an Oreo cookie. Um, On the outside, on the top and the bottom, you have this yummy, you know, crunchy goodness. So the psalm begins at the top with doxology, which means praise, and then it ends with the same, okay, the same verse even. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, verse 1 and verse 9. And the interior of the hymn is filled with the goodness of God's condescending love and his providence for the human race. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him and you have crowned him? with glory and honor. Now from a carnal, or we might even say, you know, a humanistic perspective, you would be tempted to think that the psalm is about us. But that is not the way David wrote the psalm. The hymn is about the wonder of God, which David is bewildered by. He's amazed by it. So let's let's take a little closer look. First one and two again. Uh, a big one with O Lord. <clears throat> well, let me read the whole thing. The chief musician, to the chief musician, on the instrument of Gath, Psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the Avenger. Now, David, again, as we looked at in Psalm 19, he mentions the chief musician, whoever he was at that time, uh, that the psalm was written. We can't be completely confident. <clears throat> uh, maybe the individual we talked about last week, but it's, it's hard to say. Not last week, three weeks ago when I was here. And he also mentions the instrument of Gath. Instrument of Gath which is only referenced three times in the Psalms. It's here <clears throat> in Psalm 8. Uh, Asaph mentions it in Psalm 81. And then the sons of Korah mention it in Psalm 84. The, the word is actually gitith in the Hebrew. And scholars argue whether it's an instrument or it's a musical tune. I don't really care. Uh, what is important, of course, are the lyrics of the hymn. And so that's where we want to give our attention. 
Maybe we'll know someday uh, what Gittith is. As far as authorship is concerned, this is certainly one of David's. He penned it, says it in the beginning. And as I mentioned, the psalm begins with doxology, meaning praise. And David's festive praise is, as he says there, it's a, it's a recognition and exaltation of God's name and glory, he says, which is in all the earth or covers the earth. And he says it transcends the heavens. And uh, the first thing David does there is he mentions God's name without actually saying it. And God's name in Hebrew is Yahweh. <clears throat> Uh, that confuses people sometimes because they say, well, I thought it was Jehovah, uh, but there is no J in Hebrew. So however it was pronounced, we know it was not with a J. Okay? Uh, it is um, probably uh, Yahweh. And as to a name, uh, not just, uh, it, well, it, it was probably more this way in our culture 50 to 100 years ago. Uh, not as much today. Nobody really talks about a name speaking of reputation. Uh, does he have a good name? I don't hear that anymore. Uh, people would say in construction and business relations, put my name on it. Uh, I don't ever hear that anymore. You might hear it referenced in a movie from time to time, especially if that movie was made in the 50s or the 60s. Uh, but a name had a, was very important uh, within the Hebrew culture. It had everything to do with character. And I'm looking around and seeing some of the, the uh, more adv advanced in years people. You know what I'm talking about. Integrity, uh, reputation, identity. And those are good or bad depending on one's actions, uh, one's promises, whether kept or broken. Uh, those determine if you have a good name or a bad name. Not if your name is Ben versus Jack, uh, but if your name, if, if your work, your character backs up who you are, your identity. But God's name is excellent, he says, in all of the earth because of who he is, because of what he is. God is constant. He's unchanging in his nature. He's perfect in character and integrity. He's always keeping his word. He's ever faithful. Uh, Paul told Timothy, he says, listen, Timothy, because of God's nature, he's actually incapable of being unfaithful. That's pretty important. Uh, you and I are capable of being faithful, uh, but we're also capable of being unfaithful, right? Yeah, so we are unpredictable. But that's one of the beauties about God. In many contexts, because of God's very nature, He is predictable. There's something that I can always know about God, and that is He will be faithful. Paul says, because He can't deny Himself. He can't, he can't act, He can't behave contrary to his own nature, that's 2 Timothy 2.13. And <clears throat> what is interesting about this is this is true of him whether you've experienced it or not. It's true. But for those who have experienced God's character, worship comes easy. Now the day is coming where everyone is going to uh, see, they're going to know his excellence, the excellence of his name. But sadly for many, they'll see or experience his excellence in his righteousness. His judgment. Yeah. Habakkuk uh, 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. And when will that happen? Well, when every eye sees him coming in his glory, Revelation 1.7. And uh, I don't know about you, but recently I've been hoping that that's sooner than later. Yeah. And it's at that time, which 
Paul says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. Uh, everyone will do this, but how much better to do it now, willingly, before the date of repentance expires and every man's fate is sealed for eternity. Yeah. I've mentioned this before. Something I'm excited about is uh, that even Satan and the fallen angels will have to bow and confess. How humiliating, but how glorious. David continues to say that God has set his glory above, that is actually beyond the heavens. Uh, This is only appropriate seeing that he brought the heavens and everything in them into existence. And as the author of Hebrews said, he said, he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Hebrews 3, 3 through 4. So therefore, God's glory doesn't just logically transcend the heavens. It really is the rightful place for his glory. And then at the end of verse 2, David essentially says that these truths of God's excellence and glory in the created world are so fixed in reality, so obvious to the thinking mind, that children and infants recognize it, but he says they recognize it to the shame and the contempt of God's enemies, which results in their silence. Jesus talks about the faith of a child. And uh, and then we see this text come into play uh, firsthand in the Gospels when uh, the priests and the scribes confronted Jesus as the people, children specifically, were offering Jesus praise as after he descended from the Mount of Olives and entered into the temple. It says, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, they did not conclude as the normal rational mind does. And they heard the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna, which means save now in Aramaic. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. The scribes, the priests were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Now, the whole context is very important. The children are recognizing Jesus as the son of David. That is, he's the Messiah of Israel. He's the the great anticipation of all of the Old Testament. And this whole thing angered the priests and the scribes. But then Jesus, in response, he pushes this thing to to literally its, its eternal limit. He quotes Psalm 8 to clarify that he is Yahweh. He is Yahweh the object of David's praise, the one whose name is excellent in all the earth and whose glory transcends the heavens. You know, people, uh, when, I, when I discuss the deity of Christ with people in our culture, especially Muslims, they always say, you have to turn to the book of John to defend Jesus' deity. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God, and you know, all things were created. Uh, nothing was created apart from him. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, they say, you have to go to John. Well, that's why I never use John when I'm talking to Muslims or I'm talking to people within our culture, uh, because that's what they think. <clears throat> but all I have to do is turn to these other places where Jesus uses the Old Testament. And it's important that we understand Jesus' use of the Old Testament for our theology 
for Jesus' deity, for our, um, our ability to rightly interpret the scriptures all together. Listen, the way that Jesus interprets the Old Testament, it's right. Amen? It's correct. And when Jesus says that you see these children praising me as the son of David, he says, I also want to tell you that I'm the object of praise in Psalm chapter 8. And David's praise is directed at Yahweh, and therefore he's talking about me. Jesus is defending his deity. And, and if the priests and scribes weren't completely upset by what the children said, they were indignant by what Jesus had to say about the psalm. Okay. Jesus actually does this many, many times. Uh, you remember at his trial, this too is not in the book of John. It's in Mark. And you remember he's standing before uh, the high priest, well, who thought he was the high priest. And uh, he says, just tell us, are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says to him, it is as you have said. And then he quotes Daniel, saying that, talking about the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, who goes to the ancient of days, and the ancient of days gives him a kingdom. And then you remember the, the, the high priest's response. Nobody in our culture would read that and go, well, what's the big deal? But the high priest then tears his clothes and he accuses Jesus of blasphemy because he knows that Jesus claimed himself to be God. But that's not all of it. Jesus says to the high priest, indirectly, he says, you are sitting in my seat. And when I do come on the clouds, we're going to switch places and I'm going to condemn you. That's why he is so outraged by what Jesus said. And then he calls for Jesus to be crucified, to be executed. Yeah. So in that text with Jesus there, with the scribes and the priests, he could claim to be no one higher. You see, if Jesus is Yahweh, all sacrifice, all worship in the temple is directed at him. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Redeemer of Israel. So <clears throat> when we talk about Psalms being messianic, you know, do they look forward to Messiah? Psalm 8 is definitely a messianic psalm because Jesus says that that statement about infants and children, he says, it's about me. Okay, it's about me. Yeah, it's an astounding claim to deity. And the funny thing is the children knew better than the scribes, or we could say the most educated in the scriptures, those appointed to lead worship in the temple were the least qualified when it came to recognizing Messiah. And I'll tell you, this same thing is true today. Scholars in most seminaries are not qualified to teach young people about the scriptures because they don't even believe in them themselves. It's very sad. <clears throat> but these children are the most qualified to demonstrate the ignorance of Israel's elite and to silence them. At the end of the day, you guys, God doesn't need the scholar. He doesn't need the philosopher. And he certainly doesn't need the scientists of our day to prove his majesty, especially when children are present. Verse three and more, three and four. David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. Ordained means to, to put in its place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? So what David is saying, when I... When I stopped to just kind of take it all in, to take it all in and consider the magnitude of the universe, which you see best at night. Notice here in this verse, he mentions the moon and the stars. He doesn't mention the sun. So he's probably uh, at night on his roof, 
in Israel, and he's beholding the heavens. He's considering the fact that God brought it all into existence, and he did so with a word. He's saying when you compare yourself to its immensity and wonder, you start to wonder like David, what am I that God would ever have a passing thought about me? Now, David pondered this elsewhere. He said, he says, many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done. So again, it's in the context of God's creation. He says, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Psalm 40, verse 5. So in, in both of these Psalms, David is expressing bewilderment, bewilderment that God who transcends the universe would really essentially condescend to our level. He's amazed, as, as theologians say, God is both transcendent and yet eminent. He is beyond us, and yet he is near to us. Of course, near to us in his love and providence. Yeah. And, but as you read the text here, David's bewilderment and wonder has little to do with us at all and everything to do with God. His condescending love, his providential care for us has nothing to do with our worthiness uh, or our lovableness or even our likability. Uh, we are but little rebellious minions on the surface of the planet. Okay. <laughs> and so David, in his astonishment, says, why would God have a passing thought about us? And why would God ever visit us? Why would he do that? Now, I think the rest of the section at least begins to explain it to us. Verse 5 through 8, he says, For or because you have made him, that's man, a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. So in this section, David describes how God has ordained man's dignity and his responsibility. His dignity, his responsibility. That is why God thinks about us, and that's why God visits us. He thinks about us, and he visits us because of how he created us, how he created us, and because of the responsibilities that he gave us. Now, as far as the manner in which God created us, if we're going to have intelligent conversation about this, we have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis 1.26 says that we are created in God's image, the imago Dei. And the reality of this and the implications of it uh, direct, really, a great deal of our theology. And let me just mention a couple. Murder happens to be wrong purely and only because we are created in the image of God. That's Genesis 9.6. The implication there is that any assault on a man or woman's life is an assault on God himself, and God says that any assault on him is worthy of death. You see, the act of murder expires a person's right to live just as they expired someone else's life. So that's one thing, or that's actually two things. Also, James says that it's immoral to slander another human being because they are created in the image of God, James 3.9. So what we learn from the fact that man is endowed with the image of God, man should then be protected. Wherever his image is found, it is sacred, from conception to just before the grave. Amen? Yeah, both. 
Any society that does not protect his image in everyone will suffer grave consequences. And then also, as David expresses here, because we're created in God's image, we bear significant resp- uh, responsibilities, as David will explain in a minute. But even though man is created in God's image, the text says that, nonetheless, we are a species inferior to the angels, at least for now in some regard. And that's evident in the scriptures. When we see angels first appear on the scene, they're more powerful than us, and uh, we have less glory and beauty than they do. They are magnificent. But because of the image of God in us, we are crowned with glory and honor, verse 5. You see, we have to understand, the, the image of God is our crown. The image of God in us is our dignity. That is why angels serve us. Do they serve us? They certainly do, even though they're greater than us, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. But it has everything to do with the image of God in us. They don't serve animals, right? They serve humanity, humanity, those who would inherit salvation especially. And for the same reason, God is mindful of us. We are currently reflecting his image back to him. Of course, in varying degrees, as we're you know, conformed to the image of Christ, who the author of Hebrews says is the exact representation of God's nature, Hebrews 1.3, who also is far better than the angels, Hebrews 1.4. And the author says, Jesus is the object of angelic praise. Yeah. Hebrews 1.6. This is the dignity that we reflect because we bear the image of God. And then David goes into the responsibilities that we have, at least those that are mentioned in Psalm 8. This too comes from Genesis 1 through 2, which David mentions. He says, God has ordained for us to have dominion. The dominion mandate is found in Genesis 1. It begins to be practiced in Genesis 2. It's all screwed up in Genesis chapter 3, and we've been doing a terrible job ever since. But he says, over the works of God's hands, that is the earth specifically, uh, something I think is always interesting to point out, is space is never mentioned as being under our dominion. Never. And so whether or not we have any business exploring it is another thing. Okay? It certainly wasn't created for our habitation, at least last time I checked. Also, under our dominion are all domestic creatures, now, in Genesis, domestic creatures and wild animals are separated. Okay, we have the sheep and oxen. Those are domestic. Then we have the beasts of the field, the beasts of the earth. That's the, the wild animals. We have the birds of the air, and we have under our dominion the fish of the sea. There's not much that we haven't tamed or managed, at least to some degree. And so, in summary, the earth and everything in it is under our dominion to manage for the glory of God his glory. And that's why it's wrong for us to misuse it. God placed the earth in our care. In fact, Revelation 11.18 says that God is coming in judgment against those who destroy the earth. Revelation 11.18. Yeah, that would make some people really happy just for the wrong reasons. But Christians really, I believe, should be the best stewards of the earth because we love God and we understand his mandate to care for it, keep it beautiful. Now, this is not to be confused with worshiping the earth or being united with, you know, uh, some political nonsense or uh, the pseudosciences that we see today mingled with uh, politics. Um, That's just nuts. No, but actually 
being good stewards and caring for the earth as God intended. Um, what always comes up in the whole dominion mandate, uh, people say, what is my dominion? What is my dominion? Because it seems that so much is out of my control, and it certainly is based upon where you live, the governments, and all of that stuff. But our immediate dominion is our property. For husbands, it's our family, okay? Followed by our ability to reasonably contribute to keeping and protecting God's creation. If we have influence, let's do our best to have dominion. Amen? And then, of course, we get the gospel, and I believe that's our ultimate way of exercising dominion. Uh, of course, that's to be separated from dominion theology. That's for another day. With the image of God in us, uh, Scripture would go on in many other places to say that because of that, we have many more responsibilities. But this is all that David mentions here. Uh, one, of course, that we actually see in the text is uh, because of the image of God, uh, we should be worshipers. Now, going back to verse 4, where Paul says, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? The, quest, the second part of the question, um, why would you visit man? It went a little unanswered. Why would God visit us? Uh, actually, why has he visited us? Has he created us? Yeah. Uh, but he hasn't created us just for positive reasons. But in the text, I'm pretty sure David is talking about why would God visit us for any positive reasons, at least um, after the fall. The only biblical reason that we can come up with is that God is trying to recover what he's lost. That's when he shows up, to, to recover those who bear his image. Uh, as we see in, in the narrative of Genesis, before the fall, God would walk in the garden. And that's at least the implication that we find from Genesis 3, that he would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. But after the fall, because of their rebellion, God banishes them from the garden and consequently from his presence. But in, in spite of all of that, throughout history, we've seen that God is always pursuing man, desiring a relationship with man, but he's always got this problem that is between us. It's the problem of sin every time. Okay? And so throughout history, uh, God has visited us with means by which he could restore us, to restore us. Those means have always been atonement through which man must respond with repentance and faith. And then, of course, his ultimate visitation was through his son, Christ, who through his blood, as the author of Hebrews says, he secured eternal redemption for those who trust him. Hebrews 9, 12. Yeah. That's why he has visited us in the past. Um, that's the last positive visit, or at least on the horizon, we cannot expect initially good. Judgment is coming. Uh, payday is coming. Yeah, he will visit again. He's going to stay next time. So this, this whole psalm, at the end of the day, as we've said already, it's not about us. That's important to recognize. Uh, we have a tendency to turn things around, and we even make worship about us as people. Uh, it's something to do with the corruption of sin, how broken we are. But it's not about us. There's no quality that we could render from the heart of man that would obligate or attract God to us. The psalm is completely about God, and it's intended to inspire praise. Yeah. God thinks of us. He has visited us because he's placed his precious image in us. That is a privilege, and it's completely undeserved for which we should worship God and serve him. 
Amen. And so David begins with the doxology, and then he concludes with the same in verse 9. He says, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we do pray that because of who you are, Lord, because of all that you've done for us, that you would make us better worshipers. Lord, you would make us better image bearers. I pray, like David, that when we stop for a moment and take it all in, that we would be overwhelmed, that you would have a passing thought of us, that we would be bewildered that you would visit us. And Lord, I pray that as we consider those things, that that sense of obligation, because of all that you've done for us, it would fall upon us, that we would represent you well in the world as ambassadors, that we would keep what you have granted to us. So Lord, help us. Help us to see clearly in all of the noise and all the hustle bustle of our culture. So we might pause and see you, who, who you, see you for who you are. And Lord, that you just draw us in and help us with our voice and with our lives to express praise. Lord, you are good and we're thankful. We love you. And Lord, I thank you for my church family. And I pray that you would inspire praise in them. Um, not just in what we do here, but Lord, in everything they do in life. May it be unto you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.